do are in the grotto pod. I am in the grotto pod. Bridget's in the grotto pod, and I am a liar. I know, total we're not liar. In the grotto pod, though, theoretically, I mean, what is? It's a state of mind, right? It's it's a state of mind. So, in that I sense, prefer this, honestly. You like the couch? I like the, the couch. Uh, Mark like Maron style. Room. I like the. Intro is we just sit here all relaxed with so much room. I know. It's very roomy. And we just watched basketball. That was fun. <laughs> we just watched basketball. Um, Loyola won. Loyola won. Sister Jean is super happy. She's powerful. Uh-oh. Lights she are flickering. Power- you said su- Sister Jean and the light flicker. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've wandered into ground that I'm not prepared to tread upon. <laughs> You're unholy. This is the last of our four uh, Story Fort podcasts. Yeah, we will I'm be tired. Ha- and it'll be a return appearance from author Jonathan Evison, who I have now known for seventy-two hours long enough that I can now call him Johnny. And he calls you out in, in, uh, in the middle of events. Called me out during an event, gave me a high more, five on the more, way out, and more than once he called you out. Yeah, yeah. It's like so, there's Larry. So things are going well for uh, for me, but now we're going to have Johnny on. The podcast. Who is still going to events at this point? There well, we're going to so find out. I have a feeling events. it may be sparsely attended. That's all right. Because he's really been hitting it hard. I mean, he's I, done like two or three events a day. Isn't he exhausted? We'll find out. We will find out uh, what's that left. Hardcore. How much is left in his tank? And I may ask him what's left in the tank. Yeah. Um, and another challenge we're going to have. So actually, before I tell you the challenge we're going to have, um, because when he was on before, he was on with Stuart O'Nan. Oh, yeah. And he was sort of playing the sidekick role. Stewart Although was, he's kind of a talker. He's a talker. But I didn't really tell, you know, I didn't go down his bona fide. Got it. So he has published five novels, all about yep. Lulu, West of Here, which was really huge, kind of a sensation. A New book. York Times bestseller. Yeah, I mean, when it came out, it was it was a thing. It was a big deal, yeah. Yep. Uh, Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which we have both read. I found that book heartbreaking. Agreed. Very agreed. Without even knowing that the origins of it are something bad. That he lost his sister uh, when she was a teenager, suddenly, which is similar to something that happens in the book. So, um, oh God, so hard. knowing that it makes it even more heartbreaking. Yeah, and it's a heartbreaking book anyway. And when I say heartbreaking, I don't mean you wouldn't like it because it's also funny. It is funny, yeah. Uh, this is your life, Harriet Chance, which I also read, uh, 2015, and, and Lawn Boy, which new, uh, it's not out yet. Yeah, I, I couldn't find it. the published date and all my massive research. That's weird. Yeah, but so we'll find out what the published date is. It's been getting pretty good reviews. Other uh, reviews I read, a uh, comical. <laughs> It doesn't um, say in the reviews when it comes out. I might not have read it closely enough. All right. Uh, comical. Bridget's looking right now on her handy little iPhone to see when it comes out. I have out. this pocket-sized device. <laughs> she has a computer in her pocket. <laughs> Ta-da! It, he has been described as a manic novelist. He has been described as the most honest white man alive. By Sherman Alexie. By Sherman Alexie, which is Northwest royalty. Yeah, I don't know. Right now, not going so well, but But Johnny's also a Northwest guy uh, with a very colorful background that he likes talking about. So that'll be fun. We'll get him to talk a little bit about his... He has three kids. Three kids. One is as young as, I think, nine months old. Nine months. Yeah. I mean, dude has hardcore work ethic. mm -hmm. You really have to admire that when you have three Mm -hmm. children. And the youngest is nine months. That's not easy. True. Uh, did some, and you know, I was just reading something before we got here that he had written when he was accepting an award that said he didn't publish his first novel till he was 40. And wow. before that, he's not that old. I don't know. I mean, he described, he said when he published his first novel, he was digging ditches as a favor for a friend and he had been working <laughs> in an ice cream store, you know, there's uh-huh. really these jobs. That, and telemarketer or something Telemarketing like that? sunglasses. But he also what told me mean? last time, you'll hear this, if you listen to the episode he was on before, that he also briefly had a career as a radio uh, talk show host. 
Oh, I can see that. So we'll get him to talk about yeah. that a little bit. Um, he's definitely a raconteur. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. So He's the be- kind of guy you want to meet in the bar. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I've had the pleasure of doing that in the last couple of days. Well, that's nice. And he thinks the Seahawks are going to win 10 games this year, which is kind of surprising. I'm not sure about I'm that. I'm a big Seahawks fan. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit, uh, maybe more than a little bit, with him about, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, I don't know if he's a relentless tourer, but he's a creative tourer. And he does a really good job of connecting with audiences while on tour. I think he really likes talking to people. I am blown away by people like him who can come to an event like this, do event after event, and have so much energy. Yeah, yeah. He's got a lot of energy. Um, April 3rd. April 3rd. So it does come out April 3rd. I thought so. And then I thought maybe... Lawn Boy. Lawn Boy. That's the name of the book. Yeah, like I said. In Lawn Boy, at once a vibrant coming-of-age novel and a sharp social commentary on class. Yeah. So we'll talk about all that stuff. I know uh, from the last podcast that he's really interested in, in seeing his character's uh, improve over the course of the book. I mean, improve is not the right word, but grow, I guess. There is a, a Western sense of optimism, hmm. uh, like small. Yeah, yeah. In his books, small I victories. Think. Yeah, small victories, but yeah. impor- but important. Like that kind of change is. Well, and he would probably say huge. that in West of Here. The character's victory is that he stops smoking weed and moves to Aberdeen. I've heard him say that twice now. Okay, but that's... But that's a victory. It's a entirely, very small victory, but entirely. it's a victory. So even if that's the only victory the character has, it's still a victory. And Absolutely. And I think that's, that's where he's going. So we... Let's see. What time, time we, we got We've got to walk here? over there. we got to walk over there back to the Owyhee Hotel, if you're ever is in Boise. Owyhee. Yes. Interesting story behind the Owyhee Hotel. Yeah. Uh, apparently, a bunch of uh, Hawaiians settled up in the no ma- mountains way. around here. It's a Hawaiian name? No, it's just oh. an approximation of Hawaii. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Hawaii! Like, oh, what tribe is that? Well, it's the Hawaiians who lived here back in the you know. Like no 1800s. way. Yeah, historic Hawaii hotel. Boise I'm goes back. So yeah, totally. fascinated by this. So uh, we're going to do Boise one more time. Okay. And then we'll be back in the the friendly confines of the Grotto Pod next week. Things will have oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about animals. We are going to talk about animals. But until then, yes. Uh, and also this time when we do, if you listen to the um, August McLaughlin podcast, we apologize for the sound quality, and we're going to try harder to oh get way gosh. closer to our microphones I'm this time. I'm so sad. I, I hope it works. It is sad. She well, was so great, and we were amusing, in my opinion. She was, and the bad thing is, since you're listening to, you can't see her cheekbones. I know, which are, which are stunning, distracting. <laughs> But hopefully at least you could hear The great her. thing about interviewing her is knowing no one's looking at me. Yeah, really. I can I any, do anything right I now. I can have anything hanging out of my nose. <laughs> exactly. Nobody great. cares. Nobody cares. All right. But uh, I don't know if you can promise the same thing with Johnny, but he will definitely be colorful. Oh, good. So we're going to go uh, set that up. And next time you hear us, it'll be in front of a massive live, live audience. Uh, welcome, massive audience. We are. Let's hear ya. Give it up. Yeah. Yeah. to make the, the, the crowd sound louder, you go. You do this. Like... That sounds a little bit like a horse from Monty Python. Right I think that is a horse of Monty Python. Uh, I am Larry Rosen, and she is Bridget Quinn. He is Jonathan Evison. Uh, Bridget and I are the hosts of uh, the, the Grotto Pod the from the San Francisco Writers' Grotto. popular. 
Hugely popular, right. as you can tell by the size of crowds. <laughs> just stop talking about how big the crowd is. <laughs> We're just embarrassed by Jonathan's poll. Do well, you know how many book events I've done that are like this? I was just going to ask you. So, uh, North Dallas, Barnes and Noble, there's like 80. They've hopefully got like 80 folding uh, chairs. I was actually just going to ask you before we go to anything else. How many events have you done at Story Fourth this year? You're on everything. Six. That's a lot. Doesn't know either. I don't. I mean, I'm happy to do it. I love it. That's well, why I'm here. I'm just going to be, you know, talking somebody's ear off somewhere in a bar. So may as well put them on. Might as well be up here above the succulents. But you My know, I'm glad she's not here. She is that's here. right. We're not between the ferns. We're above the succulent. Just one. Um, but actually, that's a good jumping off point because I was doing the. I was not the succulents. No, oh. the, the amount of events you've done. I was doing uh, some research beforehand, and one of the things that came up was how. I don't want to say dedicated to touring you are, but how much effort you put into connecting with audiences in person. Well, I mean, writing books is all about connecting in mm -hmm. the first place. So, like, I, I mean, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel bad for a lot of writers because, you know, a lot of writers are kind of, they're not extroverts. I just happen to right. be an extrovert, right. you know what I mean? But, like, I mean, writing a book is all about connecting at the other end. It really is. You're not writing in a vacuum. It's all like, I mean, I look at the whole process of writing for me is like that, you know, that dance between the writer and reader. So, like, I'm always aware of the person at the other end, and um, I appreciate, I mean, I'm getting older now, and I have three kids, so it gets a little harder. This would be amazing if I was 25 and single, but I'm not. I'm 49, and I have three kids. And what are the ages of your kids? Uh, nine months, five years, and eight years. Whoa. Yeah, I know. And, and you like, just feel yeah, yeah, no, yeah. and like I have to have somebody sock me in the liver every morning just to get out of bed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But the contrast is even greater because of your writing process. And I know what it is, but tell everyone what you know, what you do to write, where you go, because it's pretty solitary. Well, I mean, it didn't. It wasn't always this way. I mean, before I had kids, I was at work a day. Get up at I, I would get up at five a.m. because like you get up at five a.m. and there's there's no distractions. The world is quiet. Right. Nobody's bugging you. You can really feel it. And that was great. But then you have kids and it's like, I mean, once you have three of them, it's like, it's like trying to work in a bowling alley. You're you just can't do it. Yeah. So my wife, God lover, is so, you know, understanding. We have a cabin out in the Olympic Mountains, which is only an hour and 15 minutes away from our house on Bainbridge Island. And it feels like 10 minutes to me because I do it all the time. And I go out there for two and a half days by myself. And so now I have to work 16, 16, and 8 hours. Right, right. In so, some ways, I think that's ideal because you could just, well, not ideal, but you can really just dive in. Well, absolutely. I mean, no, no. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm the cook of the house, too. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, when I'm at home, it's like, I gotta, sometimes I gotta cook three different meals. You know how kids uh, are. It's uh, like, I know, yeah. you know, Emma likes spaghetti last week. Don't be a short order So now, I, all I do is I write for like 16 hours and I'll stop and eat some form of sandwich material. <laughs> and then, um, I've grown into it. I mean, like, focus is hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm biochemically manic, so, like, working for 16 hours at a time is a hard, you know, that's hard to ask of anybody, but when you're like, like me, it's even harder. Break it down, though, because I'm imagining you sitting there working for 16 hours, like, right. you know, peeing in a bottle and putting it all off to the side. You, Because yeah. how do you sustain it? I could not do that. The, I move the, around. Because the last eight, if I did the last... The last 10 hours would be, it'd just be garbage that I'd have to discard the next day. So eight hours I sit in my green chair that was my grandfather's chair. It's like an old lazy boy chair. I sit in that and I'll, I'll do that for the first eight hours. And then um, then I'll just kind of change pace. I'll break it up, you know, 
uh, take a hot tub or do, do something for an hour or eat a sandwich. And then I move out to the garage and that's when I edit and start drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hemingway always said, uh, you know, what, what, he said, like, write, write, write drunk, drunk, edit, edit sober. sober. Yeah, no, I'm the opposite. Oh. I'm going to write sober, edit drunk. Because, I, you know, once I start drinking beer, my bullshit meter goes so far down. It's like any false note. It's like, nope, that's false. And then also yeah. you get like that liquid courage to take stuff out. Look, kids. Yeah, it's a little frustrating because you started with 3,000 words yeah. and then you're down. He's to a trained it. professional. Don't yeah, I would not. Yeah, don't try not. Use no, really. Especially if you value your health. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've, I've been self-medicating all my life, to be quite honest. <laughs> I mean, pot. I mean, like, I, like, you know, my friends that have dealt with what I, what mm-hmm. I have, bipolar mania, they, you know, they, they went the opioid route or the benzo route, and it, it doesn't usually end well, you know? Right, like, right. A couple of them had psychotic breaks, and, you know, one of them tried to cut their head off, and, like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all right. I, the only thing I worry about is, like, my internal organs. Mentally, I deal with it fine. Um, it, it, I mean, you know, I'm just being honest. I'm, I, I kind of self-medicate because I'm mm-hmm. so I'm so manic. And, 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 and to be honest, the whole reason I write is just for the focus. It's like it's the one activity in my life that allows me to completely focus. Like, because otherwise, I'm just always going a million different directions. And three young kids will just exacerbate that. And so, when it comes time to write, it's um, you know, I just want to. I'm just trying to slow everything down and focus. And um, this is why I write. It's not because I'm compelled to write stories. It's not because I think I have anything to offer the world. I honestly just write because I need big swaths of focused time to feel grounded. Well, I'm glad you brought that up then, because one of the things that's unique about your career is that you had seven novels that were unpublished before you had yeah six novels, a memoir, and a. You know, who knows? So yeah. we talked tons of stories. When we spoke on Thursday, we talked a little bit, and I was as wide-eyed about it then as I am now, about what compels you to continue after that many uh, unpublished novels. Well, that's what I'm saying. My sanity. Exactly. I mean, so you you had, know, I mean, it's like a ninth one's the charm. It wasn't like, you know, I never really... I, I mean, Honestly, I never believed... I. I never really envisioned myself as an award-winning New York Times best-selling author who's books became movies. I never even really envisioned that. I've always been, you know, I grew up in a working class family. Uh, my mom was, you know, single mom of four kids, was five until my sister died in an accident. My dad left and like, it was always just like writing has always been just sort of, you know, I think, I think in third grade when I started, it was more of escape. But now it's just, it's just sort of my life gestalt. It's just like, it's my church or whatever. This is my yoga. This is where I, you know, this is where I, you know, and, and so I, I think, I think I'm an empath. You know, I, I have this thing, like I can't live in New York. I love New York, but I can only go, I can only spend like a week a year there because there's just so much humanity and so much suffering. And it's like, I'm the guy, I'm the guy who like walks down the street and it's like a Ben Benders film. It's like, it's I see, sort of, you know, some guy in a winter jacket on the corner and all of a sudden I'm imagining what his marriage looks like, what his work life looks like, you know, you know, maybe. Yeah. Okay, but when you say that you're an empath uh, and this is one of the things when I read your books, I think, God, how can he stand to hold still in this suffering? Mm. Um, even for me as a reader, it is so painful sometimes. Um, I'm thinking especially of the caregiving book with... We talked about that too, uh, in the, the um, revised fundamentals of caregiving. Yeah. I, and I'm not... That did tear me up to write that. Yeah, I can't I had to put, I couldn't, I, it, I was loving it, but I had to put it down Same. a few times in certain scenes because it was just too heavy. I can't imagine writing through that. Stuff. And just living well, that's with what that. It is. That's why the book had to be funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I mean, it had oh, to be sure. funny. 
I mean, you know, the accident is based on my sister's life. The caregiving part is like, you know, I mean, I was a caregiver for six years. So the character of Trev is actually, you know, my friend Case Levinson, who is my, you know, he's my client for five years, who I actually took road trips for. I mean, it, very much of that one comes out of real life. And like, I mean, like, I just, I just thank God I, I have a sense of humor because I, I don't know how I, you know. Yeah. I mean, right, how you would. For anybody, man. But I don't also, know how anybody gets by without a sense of humor. It ends right? hopefully. I mean, there's a hopeful note. You don't leave the reader in despair at all. Okay, so my grandfather was a minister, and my father was a minister before he left, you know, in my, in my early days. And, 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 like, I don't go to church, but, like, I, I think part of that ethos stuck. Like, I, mean, I really only have one theme. All my books are very different. They're very divergent, like, in, in subject matter. But, like, that there's always... There's always hope there. I gotta believe there's hope. There is, and I've heard you say twice this week that you know the hope, even if it's something. Stick around. I'll probably say it four times. <laughs> there might be a few more. We got like forty-five minutes. Uh, it's something as small as in West of here. You said he moves to Aberdeen and stops smoking weed, but that's enough. Yeah, that's all you need for hope. I just gotta believe that you know. I gotta believe that we can inch ourselves forward towards our idealized selves, man. I mean, we're all born. We don't get to choose our family. We don't get to choose our station in life, and um. Like, so as different as all the books are, they're all about people trying to just, like, reinvent themselves in some small way. Or in the case of something like West of Here, which is a big epic novel about the settling of a town and the bust of a town, really, at, at that point, like, the, um, the, the, you know, the town place takes the place of the protagonist there. Mm -hmm. And, like, all the characters are ancillary to that. And, like, it's really about the town as, as, as character. Now, not to get how it evolves. Not to get too nuts and bolts, but since you brought it up, um, when did you realize, and I'm sort of inside baseball here because I know a little bit of the answer, when did you realize when you were developing that setting for West of Here that you couldn't use a real place? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the way the whole idea started was that, uh, you know, I would camp, like there's 13, the, the Olympic Peninsula was the last uh, mountain range in, in the contiguous United States that was explored. In fact, I mean, most of the tundra and and Canada was all explored before anyone actually crossed the Olympics. And so um, it was kind of the silentest place on earth. Even as recently as like 10 or 15 years ago, there was a, a spot in the middle of the Olympics that, where there was no air traffic that they called like oh, the yeah, quietest place on earth. Some guy wrote a book yeah. just about that. Yeah, I remember that. And so, but like to get there, and I would go places like that. There's 13 uh, river valleys, I think, that drain radially out of this mountain range, which is in a unique mountain range in that most mountain ranges are like barrier ranges. Mm -hmm. This one's kind of concentric, and, and all the river valleys, you know, drain. There's like 13, and I would try every year to sort of camp every one, and I would get to these quiet places, but to get there, I would have to drive through hundreds of thousands of acres of just, you know, scorched earth, basically, like, you know, clear cut mm -hmm. that hadn't been replanted, and, and so, like, it kind of put me in this mind of, like, you know, how Faulkner said the past was, or the, the, the past was not the past, and, you know, he's basically talking about the institution of slavery. But so, like, in the Northwest, when I when we say the past is not the past, we're talking about um, uh, resource management and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like, we're still sort of trying to reckon our early mistakes. And so um, I, I got this idea. So, like, the dichotomy was already sort of there. Quietest place on Earth, tons of clear cut. So there, it was already a dichotomy, which is why the book is set up in two epics, you know, 1889 and 2006, nothing in between. Just kind of two epics in conversation, and and 
And that's because the past is not the past. Because mm -hmm. the people in 2006 are still reckoning the mistakes that they made in 1889, Definitely. you know? And clear-cutting the place and not replanting and, and doing fur on 30-year on cycles because of corporate greed instead of 100-year cycles, which makes a lot more sense with fur. And then planting monoculture instead of replanting, you know? But at some point, you had to make the decision to make up a place because you had said before you told me you were researching Port Angeles, which is a city out there on the, on the peninsula. But at some point you decided, I can't use this real place. I've got to make up a place. Well, you know, if you try to write a novel like that, I mean, ultimately what happens is like you're, you're doing research. So I interviewed tons and tons of people. Like, I mean, literally, ah, okay, maybe three dozen people. I interviewed, I did maybe 35 to 40 interviews. And like after a while, it's like everyone... Everyone has kind of a sense of propriety about the place mm -hmm. they grew up. And so, like, you know, every old dude I talked to was like, well, you can't tell that story of Port Angeles without talking about Wheeler's Corner or whatever. <laughs> like, and I, I, in a way, it started to get in the way. I, I wasn't trying to write a historical novel. I was trying to write a no novel about history, how it works, you know. There's the cliche about how history is written by winners, and it's so true. But I wanted to write a history that... That, 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 that encapsulated everybody. So, you know, like I, I, I crossed every, uh, you know, obviously both genders, but every generational line, every racial line I could. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted the, I wanted the Salish Indian tribes to be really well represented here. I wanted the white settlers to be represented. I wanted the one black guy and, you know, 2005 living in Port Angeles to be, I wanted everybody to have a voice in this book. And, and I started to view all these ancillary characters as, Sort of like if you if you view you know if you view your character your protagonist like your protagonist moves through the story and makes these decisions that sort of complicate his uh, complicate his or her uh, you know, journey. Mm -hmm. I, I started to look like pl place place took the place of protagonist and like all these ancillary characters were kind of making decisions that would shape the place. You know whether they were great you know, great white industrialists from Chicago in the East, or or it was a six-year-old, you know, Clallam Indian boy who, who was viewed by his people as sort of a, a, you know, he was viewed by his people as sort of a, a, you know, a seer, but like, was actually, I kind of used the diagnostics for an autistic kid, because as a caregiver, I knew that the behavior of Mm -hmm. You know, I worked with so many kids with Asperger's and stuff like that. Like, I knew how they behaved and how they viewed the world and the lens they looked through it. And so I'm like, what happens if, I, you know, I try to, like, sort of cross-culture and, and I have this 8-year-old Indian column boy who's basically, you know... How did that go? I mean, right now that's a really hot topic, writing cross cultures and well, and you're doing well, I mean, if we can't, I mean, I'm happy to have the appropriation conversation. I mean, the fact is, if, if there's no appropriation, I don't have a job. Yeah, I mean, that's what I do. I'm not a 79 year old woman on an Alaskan cruise. I'm not an eight year old Indian boy. I'm not a 54 year old, uh, you know, black dude from Port Bonita. I mean, that's the whole reason I write is to try to become more expansive. To try to, I look at fiction as like this empathic window. I get to jump through and sort of. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not just, it's not totally speculative, you know what I mean? Like right. Mike Munoz, I'm not half Latino, but my 21-year-old my nephew, or, you know, at the time, like he's now 26, but he, my nephew's, he, he's half Latino, so it's and I basically raised him like a son, so I have this window into his experience, mm. and like, but if you take away appropriation, all I have to do is write about a fat, middle-aged white guy, I mean, I'm, I'm going to stop writing. There's no I mean, I'm going to go back to landscaping or Wait, telemarketing sunglasses. You're telling me there's no market for fat, middle-aged white guys? Well, not anymore, probably. <laughs> rightly, rightly so. I mean, we suffered through a half century of that shit. 
We had our, like, we had our you had your run. It was a pretty good run. Yeah, pretty good run. Oh, wait, I want to get to the uh, telemarketing sunglasses. How yeah, is that where you sell them over the phone? Yes. Yeah. That's just one of the many. How does one describe a pair of sunglasses? It's hard when you can't see the person's face. Right, right. I mean, the big selling point was like the UV thing. They're UV blockers. They basically look like, have you ever seen like a old lady in these glasses? Yeah. It looks like a whole thing. Yeah. So, like, the big selling point was the UV, you know, it blocks out the UV rays. Uh, well, it, and that was one of the better jobs. I was going to say, let's talk a little bit about some of your colorful jobs, because I'm curious, and, and I'm not sure if, if you would consider them as motivators in writing, or if it you just consider like them stuff you were just doing. The thing about being a fiction writer is nothing's wasted. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So, like, I'm a blotter. Like, so, I mean, it's a, the, the, my whole life gestalt is to be a blotter. And so, like... As a writer, the greatest thing about it, I mean, this is how I wrote eight books without this, you know, like I said, I, I medicate and this is my, this is my focus, but also like I know that no experience is wasted. So like every doomed love affair, every crappy job right. I've ever had, every, somehow, some way it's going to work itself it's in the writing. Already I've written about caregiving, already I've written about landscaping. Already, I've, you know, I, already I've written about being a hot dog vendor. It all your whole experience, you get to view. No matter how miserable it is when you're going through it, you know that you get to like polish that turd at some point. You know, hopefully make something yeah. you know artist and or yeah. So like, I mean, it's a healthy way to live. I totally know? agree. What became of the eight books? Um, yeah. you, um, I ceremoniously like buried or something. Was it? Yeah, well, I buried them. Yeah. I did salt the earth, so that's probably more ceremony than they deserved. Uh, and then, you know, five of them are still laying around. Do you ever revisit them? No. No. Absolutely not. And your agent, they don't say like... No. Well, you no. I mean, as it is, it's like I, I'm, I'm so compelled to write that I write... I, I have a book every two years or every year and a half. And wow. it's like uh, they don't want to publish me more than every two or two and yeah. a half years. So I'm already backed up. Like, I mean, my first, my next book isn't even out in, for two weeks. And I'm already done with another book. And it's 500 pages long. You're killing me right now. So it's not like a... Well, you know, careful what you wish for, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's like... You know, I can't stop. Yeah, I think I read something, an interview, and right after Harriet Chance came out, where you said you had the next five already mapped out. Oh, I don't know about five, but probably two or three at that point, but then one of them failed, so there goes that one. You know, I'd written 14 novels, and then I wrote a failure. So my, my failure is still, you know, I've written six, six successful books and eight or nine failed books. So well, so still operating in a yeah, deficit yeah. here. But so what does that do after after a run like that? And I think we talked about this a little bit the other night about building momentum. And is that possible as a writer? I mean, you, if you wrote five, I mean, you go to Jonathan's Wikipedia page and all you see is award, 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 award. New York Times bestseller, award, award, award. Oh, that's awesome. And then you have a failed book after all that. How shocking is that? What does that do? Well, I did, well it would have been a lot harder if it failed in the marketplace, I think, or would failed critically. No, as long as it's my own failure, yeah. I'm, I'm dealing with my terms. I'm the one that decided not to publish. Do you know it's a failure while you're writing? Like, you get to a certain point, you're like, this it's is just not going to go, finish. or you finish it. I did on the first three bad ones. Yeah. I knew, but I had to finish it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. My first novel I wrote when I was 19, and by the time it was over, it's about a 19-year-old guy trying to write his novel. I knew it wasn't going <laughs> to end up like being great, but you're just getting like, it's just like yeah. anything else. I mean, I mean, how am I going to get good at writing an ending? No. Until I write a few bad ones. Yep. I really believe this is why I don't teach. I really just don't believe. I mean, like I'll do workshops or whatever, but I mostly kind of handle it like writer's boot camp. I just want to teach you how to like manage your workflow and how to quit making excuses and how to empower yourself to actually do the work. I don't want. I don't want you. I don't want you to. I'm not going to assign you Dennis Johnson or 
Tim O'Brien, amazing writers who both made it on their own, and say, well, this is how we use the prismatic lens, or this is how we, this is how we do this, or this is, look how they do it, now you try to emulate that. I think failure is just the best way to learn anything. I think you, if you're gonna like, uh, arrive at any sort of uh, you know, original voice, you do that by failure. So like, I don't wanna, I really don't, I would feel like an enabler, really, to just like, to be teaching people like, because I really just believe it's experience, and the, and the experiences aren't in the classroom. Well, how do you engage with that world then, with the, the MFA world and, and the Ivy League world? I mean, those people well, I think they probably hate me because I do live <laughs> interviews, right? Yeah. Don't do it. But they're sharing but, space with you, right? Yeah, no, yeah, and, and I have many friends that do that, but like they're all secretly miserable, to be honest. Really? I mean, like, nobody wants to... Teaching's hard, dude. It's so hard. I mean, that you're creating, you know, you have to to figure out your whole syllabus. Yeah. You know, it's hard. But not just that. I I often think about just, like, getting your writing done when you're reading so much other stuff. It's often really bad. Yeah. That just would... Although, I guess, on the other hand, you're seeing, like, where the failures are and why things don't work, and you don't make that mistake in your own work, maybe. I don't know. But I think it would be really hard to do that. Yeah. I don't, know. I don't <laughs> want to do out. I hope to never Tell me this, that so you're talking about... I'd rather go back to landscaping, to be perfectly yeah. honest. But uh, do you have any, like, um, social media obsessions? Crickets. Did you hear that? I hear it now. Crickets. <laughs> um, I mean, thank you, sir. You know, do you feel, like, when you go to your cabin, is there Wi-Fi? Do you have those distractions? Yeah, yeah. I, I fought it for the first three years. I didn't have any Wi-Fi yeah. or anything like that. But, like... It's hard to write like that because one of the we're, we're spoiled as writers in the twenty first century. Oh my god! So I mean, even I, I noticed a difference so from much. like fifteen years ago. Like, you know, if I needed to find out, say that you know what kind of back window a seventy eight Duster had, uh, I had to go to the library and go to the re- reference section and find the um, you know owner's manual for a seventy eight. You know, now yeah. I can fact check that stuff in a second. So crazy, we can find online everything. It's yeah. time consuming, but. Not like going to the library. No, like no, I'm saying twenty minutes. Going to the library is time consuming, but it's more rewarding ultimately. I was gonna say I want to make that argument that you get to smell the books and you get to be. Oh yeah. So when you do deep research, yeah, no, you can't avoid it. Even the public library isn't enough when you're going deep research. You got to go to like the historical society and go to places where you can't even check out books. Like with West of here, like so. My whole idea of that book was to, like I said, like subvert the tropes of. Uh, historical fiction, the big wide-angle lens, the big Shakespearean characters, this mm-hmm. convergence of events, and and give everybody a voice. And so, in order to do that, what I did was I worked deductively, or or is it inductively? I started with general. I started with the big wide, big and, went little. and and went little and little. And eventually, before I got to the interviews, I got to this place where you go to the historical society and you find these little tape tape bound narratives written by like a frontier woman and it would literally be like sometimes it'd be like 12 pages of we had a party in a barn and it would be like 12 pages of like so and so were at gingham dress and mowing her hair and it's like that's my favorite kind of wormhole over and over it is those are great yeah no it is good and and like a method actor what you do is you just like ultimately like take all that stuff in but then once it starts getting in the way of the story you're trying to tell you just have to just let go of it and trust that it's going to be there so what is the germ that starts you on a book? What? Character. It's always, always character? Always character. So you start out with a character and then... Character that wants something. Wants to be more than that, what they are. Mm-hmm. Whether it's their station in life, whether, whatever. It's just somebody wants something. That's all it takes. That's what stories are. Do you always let them get that? No, they never actually get it, but they inch their way for it. They so like something. in 600 pages... 
Like I said, at the end of the book, Craig moves from Aberdeen to, or from Port Angeles to Aberdeen, quits smoking pot, starts coaching a junior high basketball team. That's hope. That's what hope looks like. Just inching yourself towards self-realization. I mean, that's what hope looks like. That's what it'll always look like, you know? I'm not a Hollywood ending guy. It's, it, it, it's discouraging to me when people say that my books are depressing or that I like my characters they, they call them losers a lot like Janet Maslin the New York Times she yeah. says I have a way with losers and, and that's meant as a great compliment but I don't look at my characters as losers no I don't I, either I just look at them as people like flawed people trying their hardest I mean they're the opposite of losers they're trying right. well right. you know who's a loser is Donald Trump man yeah. guy born on third you know a guy born on third base and now he's on second that, you know I mean that's a loser to me he's born on third base and he still can't get home like I was born you know what I mean I was born five Three small strike zone was the best thing I had going, and I had to get across first. And you know, I'm about halfway between second and third right now, I guess. Well, but I think any novelist who would think of his or her characters as losers is kind of a mean novelist. Hello, Jonathan Franzen. I know. I know. Let's talk about Jonathan Franzen because that is actually what pisses me off about him. Well, he's got this sneering contempt for his characters. Oh my god, you said that so well. I, I am. It makes me so angry. That he would be this evil god to his characters. Yeah. I, I think he's it. a great stylist. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, right. I've talked so much shit about this guy over the years. He but, see, I'm kind of fascinated him. with the psychology behind that. They're like, what's he so mad about? Why does he? When he gets to he's he's got a white, entitled, really well educated, right? But when he gets to create the world, he's, he's an evil god. You know, we were talking. We did a podcast with Willie Blotner earlier. Self hatred would be my guess. Yeah, but we talked about you know his. When he gets to create this world and nice things can happen, or good things can happen to the people in his world, and he gets to control that world. But, well, Willie and I come and, right, you know, our moms are waitresses, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, we're both romantics at the end of the day, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like we're we're looking for the good things around us, and that might be an empty swimming pool filled with bicycles and palm fronds that we think is, like, nice. The Beautiful. Nice the river or what, you know what I mean? It's just like, you just got to try to make the best of things. And I think that, like, it's just hard to take when... People have everything sort of like right there for them, and it's like, you, I don't know, dude. I don't want to just grind on friends and all that. No, no, good. I, I just need to, I no. also want to that back other up and say Jonathan. <laughs> that uh, I don't find your books depressing at all, but I do find um, it hard to hold my attention on these painful moments, and that's really good for me as a human. I like being. the challenge. Yeah, you know, it's Is it that hard. I, th- I feel like I got enough comic relief. I'm trying to. I know what you're going through as a reader because no. I'm always thinking about the reader. No, I'm like, the, trying the, to the give you enough there, buoyancy to get you and through, that, and that's all fine. But but I think we don't we don't do that enough. I think that's a really important thing that you can you know tempt me to that place where I'm willing to sit and think about losing my children. Empathy is what moves the world. Yeah, right? Well, I mean, we got to inhabit one another. I mean, that's the only way you're going to have any We don't always want to go but, there. And, and that's you're, a, you're that's right, too, because you don't deliver a Hollywood ending. You have to think about it for a while before you see the hope. Well, if we, don't, if we have empathy, we don't have racism. We don't have right. sexism. We don't have any of the isms. If we have empathy, if we actually inhabit each other, and that's like that's, that's the whole gig for me. I just want to inhabit as many characters as cross a wide range of experiences that are not available to me as a middle-aged fat white guy's purvey of the world. I mean, I want to I want to inhabit everything I can and try to understand it and like hopefully come out at the other end and and, and be a more expansive person. So like I feel like if we all live this way, I'm not saying I'm a model. I mean, I'm a disconsolate drunk 
self-medicating, you know, good dad or whatever. But like, I'm not saying I'm a model. I'm just saying that philosophy, if everybody tackles the world like with this like idea of empathy, then then the world is a completely different place right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about, since we're talking about hope, let's talk about personal hope. I'm curious after, you know, all these trials. My hope is that I live until all my kids graduate high school. And I, and I read, you know, about the scoop of ice cream and about the digging ditches and the selling sunglasses. How did your life change after West of Here? Um, I think it took a little pressure off me, if anything, you know? I mean, I was always happy. I was a really happy, starving artist. But I didn't have my kids. I mean, Lauren was like six months pregnant with Owen before we got any money from All About Lulu. Um, which was like my first, but you know, my debut after, you know, eight failures. Um, but we were still like up until, I mean, the book was already out in the world getting reviewed well and everything like that, but we were still totally broke. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're eating pot pies and she's pregnant and she's eating her prenatal drug, you know, you know, some nights she ate better than not me because yeah, yeah. there wasn't that much money to go around. And honestly, like, I can't say now I own my dream house and I have another house on Bainbridge Island and it's like. On paper, it looks like I'm a, a winner now, or yeah. whatever, and I'm really happy. Don't get me wrong, but honestly, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not any happier. It's just that it's a different season in my life. When you have kids, you know, it's a game changer. You have to put somebody in front of yourself. Right. So the timing, I have to look at it myself as lucky. Timing was so fortuitous. Like if if I had like if one of those first eight books had been published in my twenties. I would have fucked that stuff up so quick. You know what I mean? I had more ego. I had more, you know what I mean? I wouldn't have been like, I don't like, by the time I was 39, I had such a working class ethos that I'm the working man's writer. You know what I mean? I go out there and hit 40, 50 cities. I'm a hard working dude. And that ethos comes from not being a precious artist. Mm -hmm. It comes from being a lawnmower. It comes from being a, you know, gas meter checker. It comes from being a, well, and there's certainly something to be said for translating that sort of work ethic into writing and just approaching it the same way you would approach rowing along. Right. My, most writers I know, it is the not same. the guys we're hanging out at Story for, but most <laughs> writers I know are pretty lazy. Like I talked to them, some, some writers, they're like, oh, I just, I wasn't connecting. So I, I just had to put it in a drawer for two months. And I'm like, so what did you do? You work on the next one? No, I just put it in the oh. for two months. Like, well, you got to do something. Yeah, I, like, the the I, I so, have like, to say, I, I think writing is a kind of manual labor. Like, it, you have to go about it that way or you will lose your mind, I think. I, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I had lost mine a long time ago. So oh, okay, well, or Lizzie, you won't get much done. I don't know. I don't know how you can write any other yeah, way. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I don't, you know, it's just an escape for me. Like I said, it's just a... Just a place for me to focus. Like the focus feels so good. So it's the opposite of losing your mind. It's retaining your mind. Yeah. And that's not good for me because my. Cause you know, I'm not a smart person. Like I'm not. I don't. I, I'm intellectually. I, I don't. I, I don't feel like I'm like the smartest guy in the room ever. I feel like I'm the. Mo I think. I, I usually feel like my mind is probably spinning faster than most people in the room. Like you know, I, and that I could be, that could mean any number of things. Like, like I could see fifty different ways that this could end in disaster right here. Like physical, actual. Like and so, it's just like the same thing. Like I look at, I sit on the bus and I can't help myself. I catalog everybody on the bus. What does this marriage look like? What is she? Oh, yeah. You know, what is she dealing with? Any, you know, I, I mean, I can't. That's the empath thing, and I think that's that's what it is to be human. I mean, if we all do that, I feel like you know we don't have. We don't have all the problems we have. I think it's hard for most people to do it. It's real natural for a writer. I mean, I do that too. I watch everyone and I can tell you everything about them. 
after I get off the bus. And I think when you said earlier, you know, about taking all these experiences and using them to propel narratives or to create characters, it doesn't have to be something as big as a family tragedy or, you know, raising your nephew. It could be a guy you saw on the bus. That, to me, can be enough to, to create a character. This is why Dickens is my spiritual father. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you can say what you want about Dickens. There's a lot of camp in Dickens. You've got, like, you know... You've got butchers called Mr. Cutty Meat, and you have, like, coincidence, and you have all these things. But to his credit, he had to write his novels serialized. He never got to go back. Like, I do. So much of writing is reverse engineering. Like, you get to the end of the book, and it's like, oh, I finally know what the book is about. So I'm going to reverse engineer it so it all makes sense, and it's all fluid. He didn't have that example, but, like, he saved us from the fucking Victorian novel, man. It was all about, like, rich people and their stupid love triangles, and, like... Oh, here we are in the sitting room, and Sally's in love with her, but he, she can't possibly date him because he's below her. And you know, Dickens finally fucking took the novel and wielded it like a, a, a instrument for social change. He started writing about poverty. He started writing about child labor. He started so like all the writers that I really connect with are like have that Dickens DNA, like you know Mark Twain or John Steinbecker <coughs> down the line. These humanist writers that are concerned with like you know. The people, the the, the, the the people, the small people. It's like populist fiction is dead, and they took the novel and they locked it in a college basement. And you have to like, you have to have an education to understand what a novel's about now. Because what I'm really doing here is this is my you know prismatic window into postmodern. Like I mean, you know, and they fuck that. You know what I mean? It's like you, know, you read books because you want to connect with them. You know what I mean? Right. I always thought that was kind of disrespectful of the readers. Right. Exactly. Oh, it's yes. like, and you know, I, I don't want to look how smart I am. My reader it's not a problem. That's it. Now we've been enemies of, of Franz and Anne Faulkner. Fortunately, one of them's dead, but the other could come wandering in here at any moment. I think oh, we no. could take him. I really do. He's not that big. No. Um, Glasses, too. So, let's, let's you know, do a little origins here. Let's get back to um, when you started writing and when it really captured your imagination. When did you think, I'm going to try to be a writer? Uh, two years after my sister died, after my dad left, my dad kind of moved us up from... Um, San Jose to uh, Bainbridge to Bainbridge and then left us there. Wow! He basically because he was having an affair with his boss down there. And I was like, this is a good. It's kind of like, I'll move the family <laughs> up. It's the easiest way to resolve this. I'll move them up there and then I'll move back. And then my mom, who had never been in the workforce because you know she was a woman yeah. of a generation who was just you know raising five kids, and my dad was never home. My dad had he got like two or three PhDs. Like, he was an educated guy, but, like, that just meant he was never around in the first place. So I got nothing bad to... I mean, he's, a, he's still in my life, but, like, he's not, you know... He's just, like, a quirky old dude I like to talk to, but I don't... Like, whereas my mom drives me insane, but she lives a mile and a half from me, but she's, like, there. She's in my life all the time because she's the one that stuck with me. And uh, I, I, I just... So in third grade, I just... Like I said, I just... I, I started writing because... Um, to escape or to have some sort of, like, to, to create some sort of world where I had dominion over it because I had so little control of my world, you know, what was going to happen, like how much money we were going to have, were we going to make rent, were we going to, and so I like to create worlds where I could be the master of that world. And when was the first time, and this is actually a question I ask almost every writer who comes on the show, when was the first time you got that feedback that told you, oh, this is my 100 mile an hour fastball, I'm a writer? Well... Fourth grade, I actually published this children's story. Oh my god! Published, yes, published. SPU. 
uh, Seattle Pacific University published my story called The King Without a Crown, which was about a king a without a crown. Um, really? Yeah, no, really. So it was like really quick. It was like, oh, my auspicious, yeah, I picked the right, you know, obviously this is my path. And then nothing for 30 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like five, 600 rejections. How does that work? Like, you, you're, you're a young, like a phenom. You're a prodigy. Yeah, they don't yeah, say, where's the next book? If, if I wrote eight and then, you know, I had, I did stuff like I would, um, I just, I'm a sucker for punishment. I am a loser. Okay, I resent if Janet Maslin calls my characters losers, but you you're welcome you to call me a loser. And I know I'm a loser, and I'll tell you why. I miss walking to my mailbox every day to get rejection notices, because the good news never came by mail. It always said they either called you or they emailed you, and yet I miss that. I miss the 3 a.m. like Kinko's collating, like... I'm in a, like, I mean, that was terrible, too. I mean, part of the reason I got 500 rejections is because I didn't do, like, I would just, like, carpet bomb. Well, that was, you know, I'd get a thing back from Black Warrior Review, and they'd be like, can we ask you a question, Mr. Rippeson? Are you black? And I'm like, no, I didn't. You know what I mean? I just, like, saw your address in the book. I just sent it out to everybody. Black Warrior Review wrote the rudest rejection I ever got. Well, well you're not black either, so you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you do, you were not doing the onus. is like, this but is you, what I You know what it was? It was, I don't think you understand the nature of story. The Ouch. essence the essence of a story is change. And I thought my character had changed. That's I just what I said. That was actually really good editorial feedback. feedback. I don't know, maybe you talking about it and they just didn't see it. Um, my character had changed, like, moving to Aberdeen and stopped smoking pot. They didn't think that was enough change. I'm just saying. I've never gotten over it. Well, so... I'm still angry. That's it's I, time. <laughs> it's probably time. I've always found that years. one of the biggest challenges as a writer, too, is there's no user's manual how to get published. And you were just letting, letting her fly. Let's send out four... The user's years. manual is just stop caring. I mean, honestly, that's no, what that's I say. There's so many people that want to occupy the space of writer in our culture. Like, they want to be a writer in this romantic thing. And, like, really what they need to do, most of the people that are thinking that way, they just need to go right. They just need to just do it Do it because you need to do it. Do it because you got to, you know. I mean, otherwise, like, I mean, it's got to be alive on the page. The only way it's alive on the page is if it had to be written. I read a lot of stuff that it's fine. It's really competent. Somebody was taught craft. Somebody can somebody can distress their sentence, or they can get lyrical, or they can write a, a nice sentence. But you know what? What happens is if you don't have any experience, or you don't have that, you know what happens is, is like you know, you know somebody's somebody's walking across the parking lot eating an apple, and it's like their thoughts are a smoky chiaroscuro of longing, and it's like you know, I mean, well, fuck, just. Move them across the parking lot eating an apple. <laughs> this, this isn't about words. That's how I feel. I feel like there's, I feel like it's not about words. I feel like words, and, and I love language, don't get me wrong. I mean, I feel like I could be That's lyrical, huge. but I'm lyrical when it matters. Because like, you're telling you know, a story. Like, you know, if I'm holding my de dying dad on the fucking you know, edge of the great divide, <laughs> well, maybe I should be lyrical, but if I'm just getting into a yeah. cab or, you know, sitting by a lamp, I just don't, you know, really see the. I, that's that's poetic. I did, that's a whole different thing. Well, you know I did I mean? notice, and I'm you, not a poet. I did notice financially. I didn't <laughs> notice that you drew a distinction between stylist and writer earlier. I always do. Yeah, there's a lot of very fine writers, but like for me, at the end of the day, it's about empathy. It's about letting the reader own the narrative and letting the reader come through to it, and trying not to moralize, trying not to grind your axe, try to be like partisan, like nonpartisan in terms of like you know, like as an example, like um. 
John Irving. Uh, uh, Are you going after him now too? No, I'm not no, going after actually, him at all. Actually, actually what I'm going to say is Cider House Rule. Yeah. I, I, I can go after his later novels because everyone's love, afraid to edit him. Everyone's afraid Cider to edit him. But Cider House Rule is what, what I'm going to say about this novel is how beautifully nonpartisan it is. Because like this is just a novel about characters. But like in that novel, in these characters, in this orphanage, I, you know, is the most persuasive argument for pro-life you'll ever read, and the most persuasive argument for pro-choice you'll ever read. Yep. And it's like you decide. That's what the novelist. The novelist's choice isn't to answer the questions; it's to 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 start the conversation. That's how I feel. So I don't like stuff like I mean, I'm not big into Stendhal or political fiction or anything that's like like trying to give me the answer. Mm -hmm. I want them to raise the question. I want them to make me think about it. And it's like, I always use that example as a, you know, because it actually made me, I'm, I'm always a pro-choice guy, but that novel made me think about mm -hmm. pro-life. You know what I mean? And so, like, that's, that's, that's a win-win. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does more by not trying to change my point of view. Right. It's more powerful by not trying to change my point of view and just presenting both sides of the argument. Well, I would think that point of view would be pretty self-evident given that you start with character. You start with the character, and the character does what the character does. And however that comes out, that's the statement you're making. You're not going into it saying, I'm going to make a statement about being pro-choice. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't like when fiction does that. Yeah, when it preaches to you. I don't. I, I'm, 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 I'm kind of an outlier that way. You know what I mean? I don't, I, I'm kind of weird how I approach it, I guess. I, don't, I mean, I talk to other writers that are... I'm not very erudite. I'm not very... I mean, I'm really well-read. I would be a lot well, more well-read if I wasn't so generous with my blurbing and reading other... You know what I mean? If I could still just read everything I wanted to and, like... It wasn't just coming across my table and I couldn't say no. And But like when I was in college, you know, junior college or whatever, I, I was reading like three and four books a day. I mean, I read I all days. the pre-revolutionary <laughs> Russians. And I, I just, all this stuff, I, I don't, you know, with three kids, you don't do that anymore. I know. I mean, that's the part about having kids I found. One of the most difficult things was not being able to read. Like the, where you just sit in a book and read and read. You read tons. You read yeah. Captain Underpants. Pokey, oh, oh, yeah. oh, that's true. Somebody needs to sue Dave Pilkey, dude. <laughs> I, actually I mean, that my kid is already kind of a pain in the ass. And he's like, hey, <laughs> Captain Underpants is this hero. And it's like, really? I had to stand in line for 20 minutes to get Dave Pilkey's autograph once. And my kid was over the moon. Uh, that I Obviously, I love him because my kid's in love with it. But it's like... Oh, man, that's the last thing my kid needs. If anything, he needs like some sort of conformist novel. This will be your parents. But you know what I mean? Something. Just make this more manageable for me. I know that he's a free spirit. He's going to be just fine. But like for 18 years, just like don't make me say things five times. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I, no, I really appreciate it. I mean, I actually have to say I love Dave Pilkey because he's like, but the problem is, is he's like, Hey, you with the C minus grades, you're okay. It's fine. You should just keep exercising. Hey, let's be a prankster. It's okay to be the class clown. I totally believe that because I was air, I was all of those things. But it's like I'm kind of feeling like my kid's already I just genetically going to be that. I don't need your extra coach. Where, where do you come down on? This is maybe a stretch, but I'm like I guess kids reading and kids literature is the idea just to get them reading anything if they're reading Dave Pilkey and Dave Pilkey's teaching them to wear underwear and put a cape on that may not be what you want but they're reading 
I think so. But then I read this study where, remember when, like, all the kids were reading Harry Potter? And then, like, a few years later, they did a study where, like, the kids didn't end up being as big readers as we all thought. Oh, you kidding. If they read Harry Potter, it would be a window into something. Who knows? You know what I yeah. mean? Who knows what my source is? And I'm so full of shit. <laughs> I'd be making this up. I'm probably making it up. Well, no, I, I remember reading something. Maybe it was just an op-ed. But, uh, you know, about this. I, I feel like as long as they're reading. I always felt that way, too. And I used to teach high school, and that was a big argument in the English department. You know, if I say, you know, the kids are reading... I don't want to disparage anyone, but you know, some huge popular fiction, whatever. Like, that's fine. If they want to do a book report on that, I'm cool with that. Like, well, no, you can't let them do that. They have to be reading something that's in the canon. And I thought... You know what? I used to feel that way until one of my students wanted to do Twilight. Remember those books? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I read it. Oh, my God. It was, like, unreadable. But Should it's I not well it? liked in the town of Forks where it takes place because <laughs> you've never been there. Yeah, don't you know, there's, like, fuck, there's, there's like, like seven or eight stores. I mean... They have to be well, grateful yeah, for the commerce. Time. It's in Forks, which is Forks, like right, right. 60 miles down yeah. the road from where I'm at. Um, but she never, I, I don't know. I mean, she was never there. So, like, I, the only time I've ever been worried about a reading is when, because I, I, I wasn't raised in Port Angeles. Oh, yeah. I spent a lot of time there when I was a student athlete. You would go to Port Angeles, and like I said, I'd always go through it to camp, and I spent a lot of time there. But I'm not a native son of Port Angeles. Mm-hmm. So, when I wrote this sort of definitive faux history of the place, yeah. I was terrified. I thought there'd be a lynch mob or something, but I showed up and there was like 150 people and they were all so supportive. It was amazing. Like, they, you got it, man. These are my people. You got it. Like, oh, for all of them, like, you know, it was, it was probably the most amazing, like, experience of my whole kind of whatever. That's kind of writing about places that people don't normally write. The only time I dress down, because I'm a working class kid and working class kids always dress up. See, I got a tie. I got this is mostly just holding it in the gut, but like <laughs> your rich, your rich people, they don't care. I mean, rich people, they don't just show up in jeans, you know. When they don't, but like when you're a working class kid, you got to be a professional. So like, keep that car clean. But when I went to Port Angeles, I was like, oh man, I'm not wearing a tie. I'm not wearing my, some boots my, on. my baseball cap, just like I usually dress because I was I was really worried. But like the welcome was amazing. And like I, I just I don't know. I don't even know where we're going. What was the name of the book that you wrote about Port Angeles? West of here. But he didn't use Port Angeles by name. I ended up changing it to Port Bonita because I didn't want to let down all the old dudes that were like, you got to talk about Wheeler's Corner. You got to, you know, and if I were writing a historical novel about Port Angeles, knowing what I know, doing the intense amount of research I did, and I've never done this much research again, by the way, because that's not my thing. I'm not an eye daughter. I'm kind of a freewheeling kind of guy. But that was like my MFA type research novel where I read 30, 30 different books and did all this stuff. But like, what I found out about Port Angeles, like if I were to actually write a historical novel about it, it would be about the breaking of the Federal Reserve, which is like uh, nobody knows about, but in like breaking it, into it, breaking of the Federal oh, Reserve. Of it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln actually started a Federal Reserve in Port Angeles in the 1860s, and it actually had national capital status before Washington even had statehood. And he did that basically to lock up this land for his cronies. So as much as we like to (laughs) lionize Abe Lincoln, he was just like any other powerful politician. He had his cronies and he had his lobbyists. So for like 20 years, they had this, the best land in Port Angeles, like from just above the waterfront up to about like 2,500 feet in elevation. Um, Beyond that, in, in, in 18, 70 would have been hard to log. Once you get to a certain elevation with the Chippo crew, it's just not even, it's not worth your money to log. And which is the only reason the sequoias still exist. Because, because they're above a certain elevation and because the trees were so massive that when they tried to cut them, they would, they would splinter when they fell because they're so huge. Right. 
So, like, the only thing that saved them was their own girth in the elevation. So, this Federal Reserve is taking up all the best land in, in Port Angeles. And, and the settlers who were, you know, homesteading was open. People were homesteading. But they couldn't homestead in the best land. So, everybody's... And finally, they just started squatting on it. They're like, I'm just going to start and cutting I'm timber here, and I'm going to build a cabin. And enough people did it en masse, in mass or whatever, mm -hmm. that, uh, like, they finally just said, okay, we're going to open it up. Like, so that... That is the historical story of Port Angeles that I would have told if I was trying to write, you know, knowing what I know now, a historical novel, but I wasn't trying to do that. I was trying to write a novel about how history works, you know, mm -hmm. and how history, the architectonic whole of history is really buried in the, in, the in the realized moments of our own lives across time. Do you consider West Korea an ambitious novel? Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. Is it your most ambitious novel? I think so, yeah. It seems Maybe like Harriet, too, even though Harriet's smaller, but like, yeah. I mean, Harriet's everything. Harriet's a lot more quietly ambitious. Yeah, but I can see that too. So we've got about ten minutes left. Um, so I, just real quick, I want you to tell Bridget why you think the Seahawks are going to win ten games this year. Okay. I'm listening. All right, Pete Carroll's culture. Okay, you got to remember at USC. Uh, they're like, really? You're going to do this? I just so when Carol was at USC, the breadth you can get. He turned his roster over every three years. He's a master of building like culture. Music. He's like me. He's totally, he's totally positive. He's like, I love what he's doing. He's totally positive. He's just like, his messaging is totally positive. And so he did that at USC for three years where he's playing freshman and turning over his roster. So what happened is the Seahawks built this great team of Hall of Fame talent. But once they got their second contracts, once they became millionaires... They stopped listening to the message. They'd heard it all. Before. Correct. That's going to be true of any, you know. So you get new young guys. Yes. So we're cleaning house. Answer. We're going back to the running game. So, like, last year, we actually had our offensive line is not as bad as anybody thinks. It's the zone blocking schemes, the problem. Look at, she's rolling her eyes. I was going to say, I'm going to roll her eyes. No, I saw some. I saw some. She's rolling her eyes. I'm using her as my gauge because she's going to write a screen. I was just going to say, I hope you're right. 10 and 6, mark my words. There you go. Take that with you on the way out. So with a few minutes, we have. should have been 12 and 4 last year. The few minutes we have left. He can edit all this out later. Don't so worry. We don't edit. You quit rolling your eyes. I feel bad enough with eight people. Maybe if I can see if you, does anyone want to ask any questions with the few minutes we have left? Seahawks. She does. Not Dickens. the Seahawks. Dickens, ambitious novel. I think Dickens is a little political, i got to say. Go ahead. Ask a question. Um, at Port Angeles, I was there um, showing my documentary, and the tribes actually shared with me that Stephanie Meyer never showed up even to meet with the tribe, even when she was writing about Port Angeles. But she has a beautiful house there. But never, it's never... Yeah, see, I met with the elders. I mean, I, mean, I understand. I, like, one of the best reviews I ever got was just... It was just like an Amazon review, but it was from a tribal elder that, that said, like, he actually gets it. Like, I mean, I get how the clown were split into three. I get, That's I, awesome. I get how the treaty tried to send him to the... Swinomish, or what was the tribe? I mean, it's so far in my past, but... Which was kind of their mortal enemy, and it's like we're going to relocate you here, and like that was what was so cool about Jamestown. It was like the first, like okay, we're going to buy our own land, no matter what the Great White Father thinks. We're going to buy our own land, and we're going to be. And unfortunately, you know, you know, they they had to sort of anglicize themselves and start planting potatoes, even though clams and the original stuff became a part of the. I don't know. It's a really. 
It's interesting to me because when we talk about manifest destiny and the and the, it, it usually kind of like in our mythos, it peters out before we ever get to the Salish tribes. You know, yeah. we're dealing with the, the Dakota tribes and we're dealing with Montana and like you know the West is not even got. I mean, a little we deal with California, but like we never really deal with the Salish tribes in this in this whole narrative. And they're they're the most fascinating tribes to me of all because they weren't. Um, they weren't uh, as aggressive in most ways, I think, as like say like the Navajo or some of the some of the other tribes. And like uh, I don't, it was fascinating. The other thing I learned is that, like I'm totally a Westerner because I read so much Salish uh, Salish literature and, and, and legend, and I realized that there's different ways of telling stories. And I'm a Westerner, so I'm I'm trapped in that Aristotelian three act. There's always a moral to the story when you read Salish myth. It's not always what we, how we, we don't digest the story. It's like there ne isn't necessarily a moral. This is how the natural world works. Yeah. This is how it is. Or like a leader, like a tribal leader in the Salish doesn't mean the same thing a leader here. It doesn't mean he points everybody this way and that way. It doesn't mean, you know what I mean? It, yeah. a, a completely different I meaning. I think you may have absorbed some of that in your own stories, though. Yeah, I'm sure it has. It was hugely influential on me. Hey, can, can I ask you tell what your documentary is about? Yeah, my documentary is on Amy Tribes from the Cooney Tribe out of Bonners Ferry, Idaho. In 1974, she declared war against the United States government with 67 tribal members. And uh, she's Cooney. They tried to move them to Montana, the Salish and Cooney Tribe. And um, the rest is history. And she's going to be profiled at the $20 million historical museum in Boise, Idaho. It opens up in August 2018. And, and where can we get your documentary? Um, you can go to Idaho's for Don War or SoniaRosario.com. SoniaRosario.com. And that's you? That's me. That's fantastic. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. that. Awesome. Yeah. So does anyone else have any questions for Jonathan Thank or Sonia? Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank no, there's, there's only silence. That's all right. Oh, no. Here's a question. Um, I'm curious because I know you said that you're anti-MFA and I think that I honestly, I, I should temper that. I don't mean I'm anti. And, uh, I, I, <laughs> Who knows? I might need to teach something. <laughs> tell, I think the, that's the sunglasses tell writers. a marketing mark, and he's just kind <laughs> of I'm I'm more curious because I know a lot of people don't go to the MFA necessarily necessarily to learn how to write, but to workshop with other writers to connect. I'm curious how you go about that without prior MFA experience, if that's something that like you're at a point now where you can read your writing from an arm's length, so to speak, that you can workshop yourself, or that you, you have people that you run stuff by regularly. Do you have like a network? That's a great question. Okay, so like the first 25 years of my existence, I was in a vacuum. Like I was an athlete as a kid. Most of my friends, God love them, they're still my friends, but they were kind of jocks. They might have gone to college, but like they haven't read a lot of fiction since Gunter Grass or something <laughs> in college. And so like I didn't I was kind of writing in a sort of vacuum. Like my friends were writers or artists so much. They were kind of I mean, I don't want to say jocks. I don't want to paint them as like, you know, because they're really sensitive, good people. But like I didn't know any writers at all until I entered like whatever the literary big stage. And God, I was just so hungry for it. By the time Lulu was published, now it's like, I mean, I help Christian get the writers here. I know so many writers, and it's been so wonderful to me to, like, be able to talk about, like, this stuff. So I totally believe, totally believe in, like, that sort of peer review, get together. But, like, that's different. That's just, like, readers 
reading each other, talking to each other. Nobody's instructing you. You're just, you're giving it to you. I still use beta readers for sure. Like I want to know. And what I do is like, I have like maybe a, a pool of 20 different readers over six books that I've used. And like, I kind of judge, I know what their reading proclivities are. I know who they are as readers. I know what they like. I know what they respond to. So I sort of choose them accordingly. And I never front load it. I never ask them questions before. I just want their feedback. I have some specific things I'm trying to gauge, but I can usually tell from their feedback whether what I'm trying to do is succeeding or not. That is invaluable. That's totally invaluable. And, and I think that's what's beautiful about the NMFA program. I think that the, the peer thing is great. Um, so I don't, I mean, you know, I know I'm kind of hard on that, but it's, it's kind of part of my like working class loser guy vibe. You know what I mean? Look at me. I started from that. And it's not completely fair because I think that, that community is like invaluable in so many ways. I cling to it now that I have it. Like, I mean, like I've spent three days just getting drunk with my writer friends and just like talking craft and talking about also just the vagaries of making your living this way. Do you belong to a writer's group? Not anymore. I did until the one children's writer just started bringing 40 pages a time. And I'm just like, nobody else was bringing anything. And it's like, we read like eight of her books and nobody else was kind of ready. Um, I, I believe in them though. I, li I think, it, I think that is great. I think I never, I'm never against community, but I, I do think that the, the artists themselves has to be really, I think it's really, I think even before you show it to anybody else, you have to have an idea what you're trying to achieve. So, because otherwise what will happen is you'll give it to people and they're going to have their opinion and everyone's going to, whether, no matter their motives may be the best thing in the world, but like they're going to somehow kind of co-op your artistic vision and say, well, I think you should do this. And you're going to, it's going to be too much information. So like the important thing is, is like, even if you're not there and you, you probably won't be, I mean, whether, whether you're, you know, writing your first novel or your 14th novel or whatever, you may not be there, but like, you got to know what your goal is, what you're trying to achieve. And so like, when you get editorial insight, you got to be hungry for it, but you got to be able to say, well, that doesn't, that isn't, you can't be, you know, you got to have thick skin, but like you'll get some hard criticism, but when it makes sense, you got to really listen to it. If it's going to make the thing you're trying to write better, you got to really listen to it. If it's like completely, you know, if somebody's a sci-fi buff and they think you're, your novel about, you know, your love story should be sci-fi or something. <laughs> Maybe don't listen so much. But, like, that's how I feel about editors. I've seen guys ruin their career because they didn't quite know where their novel was. And their editor, instead of, like, helping them narrow that in and, like, try to, like, sharpen their focus on the thing, just kind of said, well, this is what you should do with it. And so what happens there is if it fails, you didn't even fail on your own terms. You know, you're going to fail as a writer over and over. So you want to fail on your own terms. If you're going to fall flat on your face and you may have to change your name to ever be published again, you want to at least know that that was my vision that went out there, not like my editor's vision. So I think editorial is completely valuable, but you just have to, you got to know what you're doing. You have to have a sense of like what you're trying to achieve. All right. Any other questions? That was a good question. Yeah, it puts us right at the end of our time. So... <clears throat> Long Boy comes out April 3rd. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm well, it's out now here. It's out I mean, here. that's the thing. You, the only, you know, you can get it down at Rediscovered or, I mean, they had it there early. I mean, this is the only place you can get it until April 3rd. Okay. Well, so for those of you listening online, it's April 3rd. For April 3rd. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure you can yeah, pre-order it. Right. Right. Let's just edit all this out. Let's just edit out. Yeah. We don't edit. Uh, we don't edit. Yes. Well, we might edit a little bit. <laughs> um, and I know you do have a website, though you're not proud of it. 
Because <laughs> I, I asked you yeah. last time if you had a Well, I mean, it has my tour dates on it or whatever. It's okay. Beer bottles. I don't, I don't, I don't, I just feel like 1995, you talked about my website. I mean, I mean, I'd rather send people to my Facebook page where okay. I can actually interact with Yeah, them. and I'd look to see if you find me on Facebook. I'd look to see if you on Twitter and your last post was like 2016. My last post is 2016. I think I got like 4,000 followers, but I just don't post. They're waiting. I, it's because I, well, I don't, you know, and I don't dig the whole 144 character thing. I, I want to be expansive. I want to show you All pictures right. of my you cute babies. Or, you know, I mean, uh, you know. You do it on Twitter. I guess. I don't need to. I guess I just, Facebook is my thing. Maybe. Facebook, you know, privacy aside, I swallowed that bug a long time. I, I know. Yeah, that. Yeah. Look, man, you get on Google Earth and you can, like, narrow into my cabin. I'll I know. Hey, Johnny, you left the seat up again. I mean, you can do it right now. I can give you my address. You can see inside my house. So I already gave up. I, I did my camera in case I have to do anything sort of personal. Well, yeah. I'll tell you guys our website then. It's yeah. grottopod.com. And we're on Twitter at the grottopod. And uh, email us. Uh, yeah. You guys should email us. Email. Do you have a business card? We don't have a business. See, I thought I had everything. I don't have a business. Brado, I can just keep saying that. See, that makes sense because that's you have actual I'm content. I'm using my card, and friend. we would love to be in touch with and you. Is yeah, that San Francisco? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Are you coming to San Francisco? Yeah. Oh, we yeah. would love to have you on. Yes. And I want to see your documentary too. Yes. yes. So you find me on Facebook. I will. And Bridget, where can they find you? Larry, they can find me on Twitter at BeQuinterest. Also, on you're gonna have to spell that to Oh my God, this is a terrible thing for you to ask me. Do you know that I misspelled Early my own name? BeQuinterest. <laughs> I didn't even know what you said. How are they supposed to? It's like BeQuinterest forward slash forward. Come on, say it. Okay, spell it for me. I am Bridget Quinn. Okay. BeQuinterest. Author. Author. It, but BeQuinterest is B Q U I N N T E R E S T. It's like a little so it's interest with two N's. Yeah, yeah. or like Pinterest. Uh, um, or at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com, yeah. And where is your book? And what is your book? And where is it available? Because we didn't even mention your book. Well, because we don't need to. But we can if you'd like. Um, I am the author of Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in That Order. And you can get that anywhere books are sold. As for me, I don't have a book. But you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at that Larry Rosen. Or if you love the sound of my voice, you can listen to my other podcast. Who doesn't? Which is called Is It Good for the Jews? And it's at isitgoodforthejews.com. And I finally got a laugh. I know. Yeah, and last night we decided that Edie Burkell marrying Paul Simon was good for the Jews. Of course. And as Larry said, anytime a beautiful woman marries a five foot two Jewish guy, guy it was good for the Jews. And bald. I love that answer. He is bald, and he's been bald for years, and he's been hiding it. Which I, of course, resent. Anyways, uh, thank you so much. And this is what the podcast is normally like. And if you can do us a great big favor and applaud for us on the way out. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much.